Check first and make sure you can hear me. Yes? Louder? Yeah. How's that? Any better? Okay, I'll try to remember to stay close to the mic, and if I lean back, uh, wave at me. Uh, in the last couple of years, I've uh, been in the thousands of talks I give all over the place. Uh, I've found myself uh, kind of reluctantly giving talks about uh, endangered species, uh, meaning by that things like uh, democracy, uh, human rights, uh, socioeconomic development, uh, others. Uh, but the prime one, uh, unfortunately, is uh, human beings, ourselves. Uh, I want to talk about some of these. These are not going to be things that are actually have been giving quite a few talks here in the last couple of days in this area, and they've mostly been on topical matters, uh, but I want to turn to things that are maybe, in my view, more important. Uh, they do involve issues of survival, but are not on the front pages. They ought to be. Uh, however, first I will say a couple of words about things that are on the front pages. These concerns have been 
put to the side in the last several months uh, by, uh, uh, at least in public discussion, by the threat of international terrorism, uh, which uh, compels us to peer into the abyss of the future. That's a title. It's supposed to be careful about plagiarism these days, and that's plagiarism. Uh, I took it from a full-page headline uh, in the New York Times uh, about uh, September 11th immediately after September 11th. And incidentally, this was totally predictable. I mean, like the first interview I had after September 11th, I said what was trivially obvious, uh, that every harsh repressive force in the world is going to use this as an opportunity to pursue their own agendas more relentlessly. And they're going to do it in different ways depending on who they are. You know, like the U.S. will do it one way, and Turkey will do it another way, and Russia will do it a different way. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Didn't take any particular brilliance to see that. It's a historic event, undoubtedly, but I think the... I thought then and still think that the main effect will be to accelerate and intensify uh, tendencies that were already well underway. Um, undoubtedly, there are some changes. So uh, what you describe about Japan was quite general. Um, in fact, Japan went on t towards uh, changing, maybe changing the Constitution. Uh, the uh, And around the world, the governments perceived September 11th as an opportunity to uh, push forward programs, uh, often harsh and regressive pro programs, that they knew the population would either oppose or certainly not be very satisfied with, uh, but that they could uh, push, carry through uh, under uh, the using the moment of uh, fear and tension, and also with the appeal that uh, of a kind of false kind of patriotism, which translates into loyal loyalty and subordination. I mean, that's the kind of thing that power systems tend to do. They have an opportunity, they're going to use it. Uh, but among the general population, it's been very different. Uh, so it's mixed, it's complicated. Uh, in the United States, which I know best, uh, it was uh, kind of a wake-up call. You know, the, the U.S. is a very introverted society, so people don't know much about the outside world and don't care much about it. Uh, they're, everything important happens here, you know. And uh, this was an indication that we many people took it to mean uh, we better think about the world and our own role in the world and what people's attitudes are towards us and why, and question the standard cliches because they don't seem appropriate. Uh, and that uh, led to considerable uh, openness, uh, searching, uh, sometimes dissidence, um, sometimes activism. Uh, it shows up in all kinds of ways. Uh, and all of these are indications of, I think, the same thing. They kind of ferment. It's, it's very varied with regard to uh, um, the c category of people. It's not appealing to people who've traditionally been in peace movements or college campuses or something, but all over, um, very varied, uh, and uh, varied in reactions as well, uh, which is, by and large, generally a pretty healthy phenomenon, I think.
I see that I'm listed as a speaker, and there's even a title. Uh, and if you like, I can talk extemporaneously about that. Uh, but I think it would be more interesting, and it's certainly been my experience over 47 years, uh, that it's always more interesting to enter into an open interchange on various topics. So we can talk about what's on your mind instead of what's on my mind, and I'm perfectly happy to do that uh, and simply skip the introductory talk, but it's up to you. you know. So uh, if you want me to talk about the world after September 11th, I can do that. Uh, or I can respond to your queries, uh, or try to respond to them, or be unable to respond to them. Uh, so, whatever you like. Yeah. Question. Questions? Yeah. I have a whopping one question from the audience. Can you talk about Latin America's role in the war on terrorism? Well, first of all, the phrase war on terrorism should always be used in quotes, because there can't possibly be a war on terrorism. It's impossible. Uh, the reason is it's led by uh, one of the worst terrorist states in the world. In fact, it's led by the only state in the world which has been condemned by the highest international authorities for international terrorism, namely the World Court, the Security Council, except that the US vetoed the resolution. So we cannot even talk about a war on terrorism without self-ridicule. Uh, whatever is going on, you can like it or you can hate it or whatever, but it's not a war on terrorism. It's some other thing. Uh, well, what's the role of, what was it, Latin America? in this other thing, whatever it is. Uh, Latin America has been the target of uh, most US terrorism for obvious reasons, it's close by. And it's kind of interesting to, to read the Latin American press and to see their reaction to uh, uh, the September 11th atrocities. Uh, everyone condemned them, at least everyone I read, said, you know, terrible atrocities, you know, we've got to catch the criminals and so on, but invariably, there was a, a little footnote, like in Panama, uh, the press said, yeah, these were horrible atrocities, but they're not unfamiliar to us. And they referred uh, to uh, the bombing of uh, the Barrio Chorillo by George Bush Sr., uh, which killed, according to them, about 3,000 people in this poor neighborhood in one bombing. This was during uh, what was called Operation Just Cause in 1989. Uh, military an invasion of Panama uh, to kidnap a kind of minor thug who had stepped out of line uh, and uh, was brought back to the United States where he was sentenced and is now in jail for crimes, uh, most of which he committed while he was on the CIA payroll. Now, that was Operation Just Cause. Uh, the Panamanians remember it a little bit differently, uh, including, for example, this one terrorist atrocity which, according to them, killed several thousand people. Uh, in uh, Nicaragua, the, uh, the Jesuit University has a major research journal, and BIO, one of the major research journals in the region. Uh, they, had a, they described the September 11th atrocities as uh, Armageddon. They said, this is like Armageddon, they're so awful. But then they added, uh, of course, we have suffered our own Armageddon. Uh, namely the killing of tens of thousands of people, the devastation of the country, it may never recover, it's now the second poorest in the hemisphere. Uh, those were the crimes of international terrorism for which the U.S. was condemned by the world court, so they remember that. And so it goes throughout the region. This is a historic event, but not, unfortunately not because of the scale or the nature of the atrocity, but because of who the victims were. I heard about it from a local uh, 
guy I know who's a local workman, works in the area. Um, he just passed by and told me he'd seen it on television, so I turned on the radio to find out what's going on. But uh, And then, yeah, I mean, obviously a horrible atrocity, but, uh, you know, I reacted pretty much the way people did around the world. Uh, terrible atrocity, but uh, unless you're in Europe and the United States, you know, we're Japan, I guess, you know, it's nothing new. That's the way uh, the imperial powers have treated the rest of the world for hundreds of years. Uh, and this is, a, this is a historic event, but not, unfortunately, not because of the scale, uh, but, uh, or the nature of the atrocity, but because of who the victims were. You look through hundreds of years of history, uh, the imperial countries have been basically immune. So there's plenty of atrocities, but they're somewhere else. I mean, like when Japan was carrying out atrocities in China, uh, I don't, as far as I'm aware, there were no Chinese terrorist attacks in Tokyo. You know, it's always somewhere else, and that's going on for hundreds of years. This is the first change. It's not so surprising. I mean, if you look at, uh, actually, I'd been talking and writing about these things before, and it's in technical literature all over the place. I mean, it has been well understood, and it's pretty obvious that uh, with contemporary technology, uh, it is uh, possible for small groups without too much technological sophistication uh, to carry out pretty awful atrocities. Well, the uh, gas attack in Japan is an example. Uh, it's no use just uh, screaming about it. If, you, if you're serious about trying to prevent further atrocities, you try to find out what their roots are. And uh, whenever you, almost any crime, crime in the streets, uh, you know, a war or whatever it may be, uh, there's usually something behind it that uh, has elements of legitimacy, and you have to consider those elements. That's, again, true whether it's a crime in the streets or an aggressive power. After September 11th, uh, some of the press, particularly the Wall Street Journal, uh, did do what they should have done. They began uh, investigating uh, opinion in the, in the region to find out why people, uh, they were trying to find out the answer to George Bush's plaintive question, uh, why do they hate us when we're so good? You know, how can that be? Uh, so within, uh, actually, before, even before he asked the question, the Wall Street Journal had provided some of the answers. Uh, they did do what they should have done. They did an investigation of uh, opinions in the region. Now they kept to the people they care about. So they had a, it was what they called moneyed Muslims, meaning bankers, uh, lawyers, uh, managers of branches of U.S. Corp. Transnationals, that kind of people. People are right inside the U.S. system. And of course, naturally despise Osama bin Laden because they're his main targets. Uh, they're the ones he's after, so they don't like him. Uh, and in that group, uh, uh, you can't, uh, uh, what, what's their opinion about the United States? Well, it turns out they're they're very antagonistic to U.S. policy, uh, though they're in, in the main policies they're just part of, you know, like the international economic policies. But what they, what, what they object to is the fact that the United States has consistently opposed uh, a, a democracy, a independent development, a sporting corrupt 
brutal regimes, uh, is uh, the, they're naturally strongly opposed to the unilateral U.S. support for the Israeli military occupation, which is very harsh and brutal. It's now in its 35th year. Strongly oppose the U.S. sanctions against Iraq, which they understand perfectly well, and you know too, so I'll go into it, are devastating the population, but strengthening Saddam Hussein. And for reasons like that, they say they you know, a lot of hatred of U.S. policies, despite the fact that they're right in the middle of the entire U.S. system. Well, that's one answer to uh, uh, George Bush's question. It's not the kind of answer you read in most of the intellectual journals and the press and so on. There you read sophisticated answers about how people of that region uh, have bad cultures or they are left out by globalization uh, or they, you know, can't stand our freedoms and our magnificence and so on and so forth. Uh, anyone who is seriously concerned with these issues, certainly anyone who's a specialist in international affairs or the Middle East, knows that there's nothing new about these answers. Uh, you can go way back and find them as far back as you want to go. Obvious place to look, if you want to find out more about this, uh, is the records for 1958. President Eisenhower, in an in internal discussion, uh, observed to his staff, his words, that there's a campaign of hatred against us in the Middle East, uh, not by governments, but by the people. Uh, and there was discussion about this. The National Security Council, the highest planning body, uh, gave their analysis. Uh, they said that there is, the reason is that there's a perception in the region that the United States is supporting harsh and brutal and corrupt regimes uh, uh, and is blocking democratization and development and is doing so because of our interest in controlling the oil reserves of the region. And they said it's difficult to counter this perception because it's accurate. And not only is it, not only is it accurate, but it should be accurate. It said it is natural for us to support uh, status quo governments, meaning the kind I just described, uh, and to prevent democracy and development because we want to maintain control over the uh, energy resources of the region. So there's a campaign of hatred against us by the people, uh, and that's the reason for it. Uh, essentially the same as what the Wall Street Journal discovered on September 14th, uh, and uh, anybody knew in between. Uh, so if you want to listen to some voices outside the cocoon, it's not hard to hear them, and they'll answer the questions about why there's a campaign of hatred against us, whether it's now or in 1958, uh, and in a good part of the rest of the world, uh, where people just don't enjoy being ground to dust under somebody's boot. They don't like it. And it leads to hatred. Uh, you can avoid, you know, you can indulge in the fantasies if you like, uh, but that's a choice. You certainly don't have to. Everyone's worried about uh, stopping terrorism. Well, it's a really easy way. Stop participating in it. Just about every government want bent over backwards to join the U.S.-led coalition, always for their own reasons. I mean, maybe the most striking case, and uh, the one that really tells you something about Western intellectuals, is Turkey. Uh, Turkey, Turkish troops are now in Kabul, or will be soon paid for by the United States to uh, fight the war against terror. Uh, why is Turkey offering troops? 
uh, in fact, they were the first country to, to offer the U.S. troops for Afghanistan. And they explained why. Uh, it was ingratitude, because the United States was the only country that was willing to provide them with massive support for their own huge terrorist atrocities uh, in southeast Turkey in the last few years. It's not ancient history. In fact, it's still going on. Uh, they carried out uh, some of the worst atrocities of the 1990s, I mean, far beyond anything that Milosevic was accused of in Kosovo, uh, were carried out about the same time in southeastern Turkey against uh, maybe a quarter of the population, Kurds, uh, who were horribly repressed, and uh, millions of them were driven out of their homes, uh, thousands of villages destroyed, uh, maybe tens of thousands killed, uh, every imaginable kind of barbaric torture. Uh, Clinton was pouring arms in. I mean, Turkey became the leading arms recipient in the world outside of Israel and Egypt, which are a different category. Uh, and, it, it, uh, and they're very grateful that the U.S. was so willing to help them in carrying out massive state terror. Uh, and in reward, uh, they're now fighting the war on terror. And, you know, the fact that Western intellectuals can look at this and not say anything um, it requires is a really impressive testimonial to the discipline of educated people. And it's, it's a rather striking fact about the West. I don't know if anyone in Japan noticed it, but it's extremely dramatic. Actually, I just had an interview this afternoon with a German, uh, uh, a German, major German journal, and pointed this out, and pointed out to them, which they ought to know, that although the U.S. was the primary funder of Turkey, Germany was the second. Uh, what about that? You want to... Everyone's worried about uh, stopping terrorism. Well, it's a really easy way. Stop participating in it. I mean, that alone will reduce the amount of terrorism in the world by an enormous quantity. Uh, it's true of just about every country that I know to varying degrees, but dramatically true for the U.S. and Britain and Germany and others. March. That was the 40th anniversary of the public announcement that the U.S. is uh, attacking South Vietnam, that U.S. pilots are bombing South Vietnam, uh, that they began to use chemical warfare to, for crop destruction, uh, dri started driving millions of people into concentration camps. This is all in South Vietnam. No Russians, no Chinese, uh, not even any North Vietnamese, assuming they're not allowed to be in their own country. Just a U.S. war against South Vietnam, openly announced. No commemoration after 40 years, because nobody even knows. Um, it's not important. If we do that to other people, that's normal. Uh, it's if they do something to us that uh, the world is coming to an end. But if we do it to them, it's so normal. Why should we even talk about it? And likewise in Japan. Yeah, you know, same thing. Actually, it's better in Japan. Japan was defeated. And defeated countries are forced to pay some attention to what they did. Victors never are. I mean, take a look at the Tokyo trials. 
you know, um, undoubtedly the people were guilty of all kind of crimes, but the trials were a total farce. I mean, from a legal or any other point of view, they were disgraceful. Uh, the, uh, and did anybody try the U.S. criminals? In fact, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting the way the, uh, Nuremberg, the, the way the principles were constructed. They had to decide at Nuremberg what's going to count as a war crime. And there was a very explicit definition. And it was conscious, you know, it's not hidden. Uh, a crime is a war crime if the Germans committed it and we didn't. So, for example, bombing of urban concentrations was not a war crime because the British and the Americans did more of it than the Germans did, so therefore it's not a war crime. And uh, German uh, submarine commanders were able to bring testimony in defense by American submarine commanders who said, yeah, we did the same thing, and they, they were therefore free uh, because it wasn't a crime. Uh, so if they do it, and, and it gets even worse than this, I mean, for example, opening the dikes uh, in uh, uh, Holland was considered a war crime properly. But uh, in North Korea, uh, a few years later, uh, after the U.S. Air Force had wiped out the whole country, there was nothing left to bomb, uh, they started bombing the dams. Uh, that's a huge war crime. It's much worse than bombing the dikes. Uh, it was described, but it was described with pride. You know, if you read the uh, official Air Force history or the... Air Force Quarterly and so on, they describe it in gruesome detail, but about what a great achievement it was uh, to bomb these dams, to see the huge flood of water scooping out valleys and to see the rage of the people. Uh, so they're Asians who depend on rice. And, you know, here we're really getting them where it hurts. And, I mean, it's just like racist fanaticism, but praised. Uh, that's just a couple of years after they, they uh, hanged uh, German leaders who were doing much less than that. Do I simplify all matters by saying that the U.S. acts everywhere as an evil empire? Yeah, that would certainly oversimplify things. And that's why I, I pointed out that the U.S. is behaving like every other power. You know, so uh, uh, the U.S. happens to be more powerful, so it's therefore, as you'd expect, more violent. Uh, but, uh, yeah, everyone else is about the same. Uh, so uh, when the British were running the world, uh, they were doing the same thing. So take, say, the Kurds. Let's just take the Kurds. Uh, what was Britain doing about the Kurds? Well, uh, here's a little lesson in history that they don't teach you in schools in England. Uh, the, uh, but we know from declassified documents, Britain had been, been the world-dominant power. But by the time of the First World War, it was weakened by the war. Uh, air power was just coming along at that time. Uh, so the idea was to use air power to attack civilians. Uh, they figured that would be a good way to uh, reduce the costs of uh, crushing the barbarians. Uh, Churchill, who was then uh, colonial secretary, uh, didn't think that was enough. Uh, he got a request from um, the RAF office in Cairo uh, asking him uh, for permission, I'm quoting it now, to use poison gas uh, against recalcitrant Arabs. Uh, the recalcitrant Arabs they were talking about happened to be Kurds and Afghans. Uh, not Arabs, but you know, by racist standards, anybody you want to kill is an Arab. Poison gas was the ultimate atrocity at that time. You know, the, kind of the worst thing you could imagine. Uh, well, there was, um, this was circulated around the British Empire. 
Uh, the India office was resistant. They said if you use poison gas against Kurds and Afghans, it's going to cause us problems in India, which we're, we're having plenty of problems. There'll be uprisings and people will be furious and so on. I'm not going to mind in England, of course, but uh, in uh, India they might. Uh, Churchill was outraged by this. Uh, he said, I cannot understand this squeamishness about the use of poison gas against uncivilized tribes. Uh, it'll cause a lively terror. It will save British lives. Uh, we have to use every means that science permits us. Okay? Uh, so that's the way you deal with Kurds and Afghans when you're the British. Uh, if we run through the rest of the countries, we're going to find the same thing. Uh, so it would be surely a mistake to describe the United States as the evil empire. It just happens to be the most powerful force in the world since 1945. If you don't do what we tell you, you'll just be pulverized. We don't care what you think or what you say. The current U.S. leadership is extreme in this respect, uh, but they uh, are quite frankly and openly committed to the uh, use of violence to control the world, and they say so. Uh, so, for example, when Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia was here a couple of weeks ago, uh, he tried to uh, persuade U.S. leaders to uh, moderate their support for Israeli violence. And uh, what Abdullah said is uh, there's going to be an uprising in the Arab world. It would be really dangerous for your own interests, like oil. And then their reaction was interesting. I mean, he was dismissed, of course, but uh, on interesting grounds. I mean, he was told, you know, it was, report, it was reported in the New York Times, you can read it. He was told, uh, what, he, what they said is, look, uh, just take a look at what we did in, to Iraq during Desert Storm. Now we're ten times that strong. If you want to see how strong, take a look at what we just did in Afghanistan. That's what it's for, to show you what can happen to you if you raise your head. So try to, if you don't do what we tell you, you'll just be pulverized. We don't care what you think or what you say. That's their attitude. Uh, and uh, they say so, and it's evident in the actions. Uh, and that's not very good for the world, or for the people in the United States. There's kind of a background to this. If you read the same authors uh, and many others, they explain further that there's good reason why we should be in favor of American hegemony. Now, the reason is that history has a natural course, and the United States represents uh, the realization of history's purpose. So I'm quoting. And therefore, U.S. domination is kind of by logic beneficial to the rest of the world. If you think there's anything new about this, you haven't studied the right history courses. They're just repeating what was said by leading British intellectuals, people like John Stuart Mill and others, uh, at the peak when Britain enjoyed its day in the sun. And the same is true of, I find the same among lesser uh, aspirants for the prize. That's standard. Whoever you are, the leading intellectuals explain that you represent history's purpose and is therefore beneficial if you rule the world. Well, I'm going to stop. Uh, there's a lot more to say about all of this. These are the some, some, not all, of the deep abysses into which we ought to be peering. Uh, the good side of the story, uh, which 
there really is less need to talk about because we all know it and we don't have to congratulate ourselves on achievements, but there have been plenty of them. I mentioned uh, that we're now commemorating uh, the 40th anniversary of the attack on South Vietnam without any notice. Uh, the reason there's no notice is because there was no protest uh, at that point in, say, Berkeley or anywhere else. Uh, nobody cared if the United States was going to start bombing another country and attack it with chemical warfare. That's fine. That's what we do. Uh, no American president could conceivably do anything like that today. It took years at that time before any protest developed. Uh, out of that protest and the parallel civil rights movement and other popular developments, big changes took place. Uh, one change that took, I mean, the changes that took place over the past 30 or 40 years have made the country a lot more civilized. There couldn't conceivably have been a meeting like this uh, 40 years ago or probably even 20 years ago. There's been a constant improvement. Places just a lot more civilized. It continues a historical course. I mean, there's been a long struggle to attain more, more rights, more democratic control, and it's continuing and probably accelerating. And it's a tendency running counter to the tendency towards destruction. Uh, and exactly which curve is going to move up faster will determine the fate of the species. Uh, that question is pretty much in the hands of people like you. Oh, I think Chomsky um, is a very careful and thoughtful person. I think it shows that. <laughs> um, he has encyclopedic knowledge. I, he could speak on any topic and make you think about it. And the amazing thing is, despite all the depressing things he said, that he's optimistic. And that was really wonderful to see. Noam Chomsky knows a lot about a lot of things. So he does, doesn't, doesn't he? he? Yeah, he does. Oh, it was wonderful. I agree with everything that he said. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. And he gave us hope that if we just organize and act, there's hope. That's wonderful. I feel better than I felt for months. Even in a totalitarian state, the media are going to have to be somewhat responsive to public opinion. And it's much more true in a country like that. You, you, last question. You don't have any concern that CNN and MSNBC are becoming mouthpieces for the U.S. military? No, no, they always, they're much less so than they were in the past. So it's not they're becoming. They always were, and it's less so than it used to be. So, like, take MSNBC. I mean, you know, since September 11th, the, the media have opened up somewhat. I mean, I was on MSNBC for a long discussion program in November for the first time ever. It's a reflection of public concerns that are forcing the uh, media to open up a little. Uh, and I, I hope you're right. I, I tend well, to be a little bit skeptical. Yeah, I should be. I mean, there's concentra <laughs> the concentration is true, but there are other pressures which I think are more important. Why? Thank you. Why? Why, is, why does the media control the public's opinion like this? Or what's the mechanism by which the government influences the media to control? It doesn't. It or, doesn't. I mean, the government the has almost no influence over the media. But so how does it happen? Like, why? I mean... Well, What's the underlying mechanism? It's, it's like asking, motivations. It's kind of like system asking, how does, the, how does the suppose somebody asks, how does the government convince General Motors to try to increase profit? 
doesn't make any sense. The media are huge corporations which have the, the which share the interests of the corporate sector that dominates the government. The government can't tell the media what to do. They don't have the power to do it here. I mean, let me give you a, a, a simple example, really simple. Uh, when the uh, you know the current intifada started in in the occupied territories started on September 29th. Okay, on October 1st, two days later, uh, Israel started using U.S. helicopters. There are no Israeli helicopters; they all come from here. Started using U.S. helicopters to attack civilian targets, apartment complexes, and so on, killing and wounding dozens of people. That went on for two days. No, no Palestinian fire, just stone throwing from kids. On October 3rd, after two days of this, Clinton made the biggest deal in a decade to send military helicopters to Israel. Uh, the media here refused to publish it. To this day, there has not been a report. That was a decision of editors. Like, you know, I happen to know the editors of the Boston Globe. I've been living there for 35 years, and I know all these guys. I actually went and talked to them, you know, and they simply made it clear they're not going to publish it. Uh, and the same decision was made by every other newspaper in the United States. The government, literally every one, somebody did a database search. The only reference to it in the country was a letter to the editor in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, did the government tell them not to publish it? No. If it had told them not to, they probably would have published it just out of indignation. Uh, and, you know, that happens to be a, an unusually narrow and easily identifiable case, but it generalizes. How, how, come, how come humanity is under threat and we're doing much better than 200 years ago? How come? Yeah. You mean in what respect? Right, right. You think it was better to have slavery and kings? No, what, yeah. what, what I, I want to say so. is that... No, I agree with you, but what I want to say is How did it get better? No, what, I'm, what I want to say is that we have slavery right now. But it's, Some, but it's not like it was 200 years but ago. But how come now we are under threat when we, did, when we weren't 200 years ago under threat? It wasn't under threat. Humanity, humanity as itself. Well, because now there's more there's more means of violence. The means of violence are greater. The question, in other words, would be: Do you think that humanity could live peacefully under capitalism, or do you think that let me, you could see another ideology replacing it? Well, first of all, Gandhi was once asked what he thought about Western civilization, <laughs> and his answer was he thought maybe it would be a good idea. And you can say the same about capitalism. Maybe it would be a good idea. We've never had anything remotely resembling it, and the reason we haven't is powerful. You know, the owning class would never permit it because they know that they know perfectly well that if capitalism, uh, if capitalist institutions were established, it would destroy the economy in no time. So therefore, they insist on a powerful state that intervenes to protect them from the mar ravages of the market. Okay, everybody seems to know this except economists, uh, and it's a system that whatever you have, this kind of state capitalist uh, structure. Yeah, it, does what it does. I mean, I think there are much better systems possible. Uh, and I think we should, just like I think there were better systems possible than feudalism. So you got to try them out and establish them. But, but there's nothing special about this one. No, no, I have this book that I would like to present. Folks, let me ask for a little compassion. He's had a very grueling week. I promised his wife to have him home by midnight. Pardon? Thank you. Thank you. Which is suggesting another system. Yes, okay, thank you. This is somebody's. Yeah, I'm going to really have to leave. I started at 9 o'clock this morning. Dr. Chomsky, thank you. Okay.
I can't even write anymore. I'm sorry. Oh, man, I can't even okay, We studied with Steven Zunas, and he wouldn't oh. introduce us to you. Oh, did, totally did I see you on us. I, I asked you a question. Oh, on, on, Monday. on Monday? Yeah. Thank you. But um, can we have you. a picture with you yeah, to sure. send to him? Come on, guys. You guys just chose there. Are you accepting any very much? For people who have understanding of the need for greater social change or long-term social change, do you feel it makes more sense to dedicate your life full-time? Depends who you are. It depends who you are. Okay. I mean, nobody knows this except you. You're the only person who knows yourself and your interests and your choices and your you know, your degree of commitment, and you're the only person who knows that. Nobody's ever going to give you answers to this question. This is for Steven Zunas. Okay. One more, one more, one more. Let my speaker go. Thank you very much. Okay. exactly when it was, because I remember the event. It was uh, February 1939, uh, after the fall of Barcelona. And it was about the spread of fascism in Europe. I mean, 10 years old, I wasn't an activist. Uh, but I, uh, it's a large part of my life ever since then. There was a period of quiescence in the late 50s, when the whole country was quiet. But as soon as things began to heat up again in the early 60s, I, got back into it, with some regret and trepidation, I should say, because I know very well you can't do these things part-time. If you get started, it's going to be all-consuming, 
and I had lots of things I was very happy doing and didn't want to give them up. But you chose to. Somehow. Yeah. Or had felt you. Well, by the time you know, the beginnings of the Vietnam War were coming along, it was just impossible not to become involved. The Vietnam War actually began for the United States in 1950. Uh, and from 1954 to 1960, the U.S. had a kind of a Latin American-style terror regime in place. And it wasn't any joke. They killed about 60 or 70,000 people, but there was no protest. I mean, zero. Uh, when Kennedy took over, they escalated it to a, pretty soon it became a direct U.S. attack. Still no protest. I mean, through the early 60s, uh, you couldn't get anybody to sign a petition. I mean, nobody would come to a meeting. I, I remember we used to try to organize meetings on Vietnam, some of the few people, student, couple of students, few others who were interested. But we'd have to put together half a dozen topics. I mean, Iran, Venezuela, you know, Vietnam, six other top, and then maybe you could get more people than organizers. Uh, by the time, by 1965 or 1966, it was becoming a big issue. Uh, but uh, protests were met with extreme hostility. I mean, take Boston right here. And this is a pretty liberal city. But we couldn't have public protests against the war. They'd be violently broken up. Uh, the speakers would be saved from being murdered only by hundreds of state police. Uh, and it would be praised, uh, the protests would be, the attack on the protesters would be praised in the liberal media. Uh, I remember my, my wife, uh, I had two little girls. My wife and the two kids went to a women's protest. It was, you know, you know what it's like. I mean, they're not throwing stones, just people walking around with children. Uh, and this was in Concord. It's a suburb, a quiet, professional, upper-middle-class suburb. And they were attacked. People throwing tin cans and tomatoes and so on. And the that was considered right, you know. It wasn't until late 1966 that uh, there was enough of a change so you could, you really had substantial public opposition. I mean, that's five years after the war was started. Uh, by then, there were you know, hundreds of thousands of American troops rampaging around South Vietnam. And the war, of course, extended to the rest of Indochina. And uh, nobody knows how many people were killed because nobody counted. So, I mean, another interesting thing about the Vietnam War is we have no idea what the costs were to the Vietnamese. I mean, for the United States, we know down to the last person. And the big post-war issue is finding the bones of American pilots. But nobody has any idea how many Vietnamese died. And now I'm not going to take any more time. I'm not going to give any long, long, glorious talk about Noam Chomsky. I don't have to. The fact that 3,300 people bought these tickets in about six hours, the fact that um, he is not just an icon, He's a voice of reason and conscience and intelligence, which is missing in this country outside of a very few people. I am really honored 
very honored that Noam, after my nudging him for the last eight years, that that's why he came, you know, because he just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I am so grateful and lucky and happy to introduce Professor Noam Chomsky. Unfortunately, I can't see anybody out there, but I assume there are people there. Uh, I'll be uh, talking uh, primarily about uh, West Asia, what, uh, which overlaps uh, pretty closely with what uh, we call here the Middle East or the Near East. Uh, some of these remarks are going to be highly critical of the practices of states in the region, uh, including the currently most... Uh, powerful states, uh, Israel and Turkey, uh, in a situation of conflict and threat, the state authorities will uh, resort to uh, any means that they can get away with. That includes uh, serious war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, uh, and they will do so uh, as long as their crimes are tolerated and supported and sometimes encouraged uh, by the overlord. Uh, if the master says uh, that's enough, they stop. Uh, therefore, it follows that our criticisms uh, should be directed primarily to ourselves. Uh, indignation about the crimes of uh, others is easy and uh, cheap and not particularly attractive, sometimes even shameful. Uh, looking in the mirror is far more important uh, much more difficult, uh, and uh, in these and many other cases, uh, our participation in crimes is quite real, uh, and it proceeds at several different levels. It couldn't go on without U.S. support. Um, the U.S. has been blocking any diplomatic settlement for about 30 years. Uh, the U.S., of course, provides the military and economic support. And uh, when Israeli settlements spread over the region to sort of integrate into Israel, it's the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, if 50,000 people are tortured, which is the estimate, it's U.S. taxpayer. Nothing counts. Um, the only, when they invaded Lebanon and killed 20,000 people, it's U.S. not only provided the means, but vetoed Security Council resolutions to try to stop it and so on. Doesn't matter. I mean, none of this is an atrocity. Uh, the only atrocity is when they do something to is Israel. So um, now the only issue now is suicide bombers. And when did the suicide bombers begin? Last year. That's, it's, they're crimes, undoubtedly, terrible crimes. One year of Palestinian crimes against Israel after 34 years of quiet. Uh, Israel had been immune. I mean, there was some terrorist attacks on Israel, but not from within the occupied territories. Um, the occupied territories were remarkably passive, uh, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, that's like Europe and its colonies. Uh, but if, when it goes the other way, it's a horrifying atrocity. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. is escalating it right now. Uh, the uh, Last December, the Security Council tried to pass a European Union-initiated resolution 
uh, calling for a dispatch of monitors, international monitors, just to reduce the level of violence, and which it has that effect. I mean, you know, if there are international observers around, it tends to reduce violence. Uh, the U.S. vetoed it. Uh, it was not, it was barely, there were a few words here, not reported. Yeah, that enhances uh, atrocities. Back to the axis of evil. Uh, why an axis of evil? Well, uh, what's in the mind of George Bush's speechwriters when they give him that phrase to read? Uh, the, uh, I mean, we don't have internal documents, so I'm speculating now. But a reasonable speculation, I think, is that all of this stuff uh, is really aimed at a domestic audience primarily. Well, how do you keep people silent and submissive? Uh, everybody understands this. The best way to control people is by fear. Uh, and the easiest way to do it is to just pull a couple of lines out of uh, standard children's stories or uh, you know, ancient epics about how an evil monster is coming to destroy you and the, uh, you know, the incarnation of... Uh, Actually, it, it happened that while this stuff was going on, I was in India, and I sort of you know, tried to get to sleep at night. I was reading Indian epics, which are kind of fun. The chief, the main epic, the Ramayana, is about, is about exactly this. I think Bush's speechwriters must have plagiarized it. Uh, the incarnation of Vishnu comes down to earth. He's the perfect man. He's going to drive evil from the world. And uh, it comes the stories of how he does it. I mean, that had some literary value as compared with the plagiarism, but uh, the picture is about the same. Uh, why Axis? Well, I doubt that Bush knows what the word refers to, but the population <laughs> is supposed to uh, recognize the connotations. You know, you're supposed to think of the Nazis and Italy and Japan and so on. Uh, well, going back to the real world again, the three countries that are the axis of evil, uh, Iraq and Iran, have been at war for the past 20 years. Uh, North Korea has less to do with either of them uh, than France does. Uh, North Korea is tossed in, presumably, for two reasons. For one thing, it's totally defenseless, therefore it's isolated, perfect target to attack, you know, easy, cheap, uh, nobody will object. Uh, of course, the bringing it into the axis of evil uh, does severely increase threats in the region. South Koreans don't like it at all, or the Japanese and others, but that's a marginal issue. Uh, furthermore, North Korea is not Muslim, uh, so therefore it may deflect the uh, belief that uh, U.S. policies are targeting the Muslim world. Now, what about Iraq? Uh, well, Bush and Tony Blair, who the... Uh, London Financial Times recently described as uh, the U.S. ambassador to the world. Uh, the uh, other press describes in a little less complimentary terms, America's poodle and things like that. Uh, Bush and Blair have uh, recently, uh, just a couple of days ago, have repeated the standard line of Clinton and others. Uh, that we really got, we've got to get rid of Saddam Hussein. He's such a criminal that he uh, has even used chemical weapons against his own people. And that's perfectly true. He did use chemical weapons against his own people, an ultimate crime. Uh, all that's missing is that he did it with the full approval of Daddy Bush. 
uh, who continued to support him right through that period and beyond, as did Britain. Uh, they thought it was just fine for him to use gas against his own people uh, to develop uh, weapons of mass destruction, which he was doing with the support of the United States and Britain, which continued irrespective of his atrocities uh, uh, because he was uh, useful at that time. I mean, it's true that he's a monster. He was much more of a monster then. It's tr probably true that he's developing weapons of mass destruction. Uh, then he was certainly doing it with our support, and he was far more dangerous, way more powerful, and much more dangerous. He's a threat to anybody within his reach, but the reach is much smaller now. Uh, he's evil, all right, but his crimes can't, can't possibly be the reason for the planned attack. Because you cannot comprehend that we should apply to ourselves the standards you apply to others. That is incomprehensible. If you take a poll among U.S. intellectuals, support for bombing Afghanistan is just overwhelming. Uh, how many of them think that you should bomb Washington uh, because of the U.S. war against Nicaragua, let's say, or Cuba, or Turkey, or anyone else? Uh, if anyone were to suggest this, they'd be considered insane. You know? But why? I mean, I mean, if one is right, why is the other wrong? Uh, when you, you try to get someone to talk about this question, they just will try. They can't comprehend what your question is. Because you can't comprehend that we should apply to ourselves the standards you apply to others. That is incomprehensible. Now, you know, there, there couldn't be a moral principle more elementary. I mean, all I have to do is read George Bush's favorite philosopher, you know. Um, there's a definition, famous definition, in the Gospels of the hypocrite. Um, the hypocrite is the person who refuses to apply to himself the standards he applies to others. By that standard, just, you know, the entire commentary uh, and discussion of the war, so-called war on terror, is pure hypocrisy, uh, virtually without exception. Uh, can anybody understand that? No. Can't understand that. But that's not so unusual. I mean, you know, I'll bet you anything that if you go back to Japan in the 1930s or 40s uh, and you did a poll of intellectuals on the war, you'd probably get the same reactions. I mean, I know it was true in Germany and France and everywhere else. It's just standard. It's ugly, but it's standard. Uh, you've said that we as citizens should not speak truth to power, but instead to people. Shouldn't we do both? Uh, speak more on this subject. Uh, this is a reference to uh, about the only thing on which I find I disagree with my Quaker friends. Uh, on every practical activity, I usually agree with them, but I do disagree with them about their slogan, uh, speaking truth to power. Uh, first of all, power already knows the truth. You don't have to hear it from us. Uh, secondly, it's a kind of, it's, uh, it's a, first of all, a waste of time. Uh, furthermore, it's the wrong audience. Uh, you have to speak truth to the people who will dismantle and overthrow and constrain power. Uh, furthermore, uh, I, don't like, I don't like the phrase, speak truth to. We don't know the truth, at least I don't. Uh, we should join with the kind of people who are willing to commit themselves to overthrow power and listen to them. Uh, they often know a lot more than we do, uh, and join with them to carry out the right kinds of activities. Uh, I, should you also speak truth to power? 
if you feel like it, but I don't see a lot of point. I'm not interested in telling uh, the people around, you know, uh, Bush uh, what they already know. Uh, my friend is a young Afghan-American woman who is still in high school and has chosen not to live her life here. Instead, she's chosen to earn a degree in teaching and move to Afghanistan uh, to reach and help Afghan children. What advice would you offer her? Uh, specifically, what can she do to be most effective and protect herself as a woman? I mean, she knows, I'm sure, without knowing her, she knows a hundred times as much about this topic as I do, so I wouldn't offer her any advice. Uh, I would offer ourselves advice. Uh, we have a responsibility to Afghanistan. Uh, the United States and Russia, those two countries, destroyed Afghanistan. Uh, in the last 20 years, the two countries have destroyed the Afghanistan. We shouldn't be giving them aid. We should be paying them reparations. We should be honest enough to do that. not the only country in the world to which we owe reparations, but it's one. And the way we could assist this young Afghan woman is uh, by doing the kind of thing that she and others like her would, or would ask us to do. Uh, and we should follow their lead. We don't have anything to tell them. Uh, how have your studies in linguistics contributed to your analysis of world events? That's easy. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> And three of you asked that question. Actually, it's negative because it's taken time away from thinking about world events. <laughs> There's no really direct connection. I could just as well be an algebraic topologist and do the same things. There's a more remote connection, possibly. Uh, I'm, I'm, at least from my point, people are interested in linguistics for all sorts of reasons, but my own interest for since the beginning for 50 years has been uh, as a way of exploring some aspects of human uh, higher mental faculties and ultimately of human nature, uh, which should show up in every domain, not just in... I mean, language happens to be one of the few areas where you can study uh, very core human capacities, unique and core human capacities in a very intense way and... Uh, achieve some non-results that go beyond superficial understanding. In most areas, it's very hard to do it. But this is one area in which you can. Uh, and uh, at the core of this capacity for language, it's been recognized for centuries, uh, is a kind of what was sometimes called a creative aspect, uh, the free ability to do what you and I are doing, to... Uh, express our thoughts without limit, within constraints, but without limit um, in novel ways and so on. That's somehow a fundamental part of human nature. It's the core of Cartesian philosophy was this ability, for example. Well, similar questions arise in every aspect of uh, human capacity, and again, it's traditional. So David Hume, um, 250 years ago, pointed out that the foundation of morals uh, must be what we nowadays call generative grammar. He didn't call it that. Uh, but it must be some set of principles that we're capable of applying in novel situations, uh, again, without limit. And he pointed out these principles have to be part of our nature because there's no way to acquire them from experience. In theory, you can learn something about these aspects of human nature. And that, uh, moving over to the 
domain of human affairs, including politics, but personal life or anything else. Uh, anyone who make, takes any stand on anything, uh, say if you're in favor of keeping things the way they are, or some minor reform, or a revolution, or whatever it may be. Um, I mean, if you're serious about it, if you're acting as a, a kind of a moral agent, you think what you do should meet certain minimal moral standards. You're taking that position because you think it's it's good for people. It's going to somehow conform. It's going to bring out and amplify and offer possibilities for their fundamental nature to express itself. Well, at that point, there's a theoretical connection, but it's pretty abstract. Because when you deal with anything as complex as human beings, you're always on the surface. In fact, we can't answer questions like this about insects. Uh, it'll be a long time, if ever, before uh, uh, one can have a, anything like scientific understanding of any questions like these. So if there's a kind of connection in spirit, but uh, not in no deductive connections. In the last 40 years, the country has just become a lot more civilized in many respects. I mean, the big popular movements that have had a massive effect on the country aren't even from the 60s. They're from the 70s and the 80s. So there was only the bare beginnings of a feminist movement in the 60s. It became a major popular movement in subsequent years. Uh, the environmental movement almost didn't exist. It's the 70s and the 80s. Uh, the same with the solidarity movements, the anti-nuclear movement, the uh, currently what's called ridiculously anti-globalization, meaning support for a form of globalization that has concern for people, not investors. Uh, those are all much more recent things, and they're massive, and they've changed the character of the country. Uh, so I think, uh, look, it's not a pretty world, but I think things have improved. Uh, and, and uh, you know, there are many different measures of this, and it's pretty substantial, and I think it's very important. It shows that things can be achieved in the only ways that are around, by educational efforts, by organizing, by activism of all sorts. And we have every opportunity open to us. You know, we're not in Turkey. You know, we're not in Colombia. We're not going to get assassinated. We're not going to get thrown into prisons. Uh, every option is open. Uh, and we have all kinds of privilege. It's just a question whether you want to pursue them. As a follow-up question to that, I was wondering if... Could you talk a little more into the mic? I think, I think that should be the last question. That was the last question. I'm sorry. I've got to go off, go off to something else, I'm afraid. So if you... I have a boss, too. My wife. <laughs>
first do the usual check and make sure you can hear me, okay? Can you hear me? 